Hey, welcome to the Peer Connects podcast, where we're going to be talking about struggle, triumph, and everything in between. I'm Devin. I'm a peer support worker and addictions counselor. My name's Ryan. I'm a social service worker. I've been working uh, as an outreach worker on the front lines of the homelessness and opioid epidemic over the last few years. I'm very passionate about working in the field of addiction and mental health and um, creating change, creating, creating change. And we're also here with a special guest tonight. today. We're going to talk a little bit about, uh, specifically about addiction and the impacts of addiction. Um, Steve, do you want to do a little intro and, and tell the audience a little bit about yourself and kind of what brought you to the podcast here? Uh, what brought me to this podcast, I think really at the end of it, is luck. I'm very, very lucky to be where I am right now with my road to addiction. It, uh, I'm 54. Three years old, I'll be 54 in a couple of weeks, and uh, I'm lucky to be alive, to be honest. Um, my opioid addiction probably started at least 15 years ago, so, and I struggled on and off with myself trying to get off of it. I had a pretty successful job as a supervisor at a local plant where I worked, um, and they had no idea that I would, was dealing with this addiction. At times, it was getting out of hand. Um, most of the times, my wife would know. But what started it was, believe it or not, was a vasectomy surgery. I know the guys like to talk about this. They all grab themselves when they talk about it, but <laughs> that's what started it all. I uh, had the vasectomy and ended up with a hemat- hematoma and that area grew to the size of a cantaloupe and maybe to the size of a volleyball within a couple of weeks. So I ended up on opioids and I was prescribed them on a regular basis after that. And uh, at first it, it didn't catch me, you know, but uh, later on, I think as the years went along, it, it just became more and more, I needed more, right? So. Are opiates the only sort of option in that situation? No, they're not. Actually, I've tried several non-opioid medications, I think like close to six or seven. And most of them, well, all of them never worked. They just made me exhausted. And I had spoke to a couple specialist doctors about uh, opioids, and they said that's the sad thing about pain. Opioids is one of the best medications for that type of uh, injury. So then as time went on, because of my groin injury, I gained weight, I hurt my back, and then, you know, it was more opioids, right? And it just got worse and worse and worse. And then, then I was finding I wasn't getting enough. Dope sick, you know, tried to cut cold turkey several times. Never, never could do, I, w- I would sit in bed for days just trying to get through it. I remember my kids coming to me and wondering what, you know, the day before I was bouncing around like an energizer bunny, like today I'm, I'm in bed, right? Because it's dope sick, right? Can you break down the feelings of, of being dope sick to the audience? Um, that'd be great. It's like a flu on, on steroids. Like it's unbelievable. People that have never been addicted to opioids have, don't, I don't know how to say this, but they don't have a say in this opinion. They just really don't. And that's one of the biggest frustrating things with me 
is, you know, people that are making decisions in our world of addiction right now are people that never been addicted to, to opioids. They don't yeah. really have, they don't have a say, right? You almost need, you need people that are in the field that have been struggled with opioids, you know, been, been cured more or less. You're not cured, but you fought the addiction and you've won, right? So, yeah. That's why it's so hard to get off those things too, right? Because you're, you feel so shitty when uh, you're not, when you don't have them. Yeah. It's like the, the quickest way out of that pain is to just take some more. Yeah. I think I briefly touched on this on our first episode is I also struggled with opioids, Steve, and we talked about this uh, through the years that we've known each other. And yeah, just like Devin said, it's like, how do you get yourself healthy and feeling better when you don't have a break to do so? Um, you're constantly needing to look after your kids. Like you said, Steve, you got to go to work to pay the bills. Um, we want to get help, but a lot of times when we reach out to these organizations, we don't get the help that we're looking for right away. We get put on a wait list. We don't get contacted for a long time. And I know that you've had some experience with that too, Steve, right? I don't know if you want to speak to that at all. Yeah, sure. I won't mention any, any names, but uh, when I first really seek some serious help was March of 2020. And I, w I went to the clinic in my town and I sat there, filled out some information. A uh, woman said that the nurse and the doctor would be in. I waited for about two and a half hours. You know, nothing's happening. Meanwhile, when this time period is right in the heart of COVID. Mm -hmm. So the person, uh, facilitator running the, running the clinic came to me and said, um, yeah, the doctor's not coming in today, nor the nurse. Uh, so you're going to have to leave. And I said, well, what do you mean? She goes, well, we're turning this facility into a, a COVID clinic. I'm like, okay, well, what about me? I don't know. Here's some brochures. Thank you. You know, right. so what did I do? I, I went and found some more opioids, contacted people that I was buying them from. And that's what I did. And it started up again. Right. So now it's not just the, uh, the frustration of not getting help. It's like the rejection of like being right. turned away too. Yeah. And then, and the rejection too thing, like then I got to go home, explain to my wife and she's like, yeah, okay, right. Bullshit. You know, she calls bullshit. She thinks, Oh no, you just want to keep taking opioids. Right. And it was becoming a financial burden big time because I was, you know, I only wanted to stick to prescription stuff. I didn't want to take street stuff. So it was only like opioid uh, medications, which at the time and still now are incredibly expensive. And the only way I could feel good is by taking them. Would you say now, I, I don't want to, I don't want to get people wrong either. There is help available out there. There's definitely organizations that can help and it's not every time is a bad experience. I think that this is important to talk about too because yeah, you had that terrible experience when you did initially go to reach out for help, but through your journey of recovery, did you get connected to some support? I I did. It was um August of that same year, 2020, early August. I was contacted a facility and I won't say their name, but they said, "Oh, we're closing at 4, but you can come to Barry and start." And I'm like, what? And I said, why wasn't I never told this before? And she said, I don't know. So this is like uh, 3.30. I live in 
an area north of uh, Barrie, and I motored myself there. Meanwhile, I don't know if anybody, like if you know what dope sick is like, I was not feeling very well. I, ju I just freaked out. I could not believe how sick I was. It, it had been days that I'd struggled. I think it was seven days that I hadn't taken any opioids. I was in rough shape. And I went to this clinic. I just got there like it was three minutes to four before they were closing. She said, oh, yeah, we can help you. So I waited, waited. There was quite a big lineup there. And Dr. Simi talked to me. I was, they could tell the nurses could tell I was pretty upset. I just cried a few times. But anyway, <laughs> he got me on Suboxone. And within an hour, I was feeling better. So, yeah. yeah I couldn't so believe it. For, for everyone listening out there, just a, a great example of, of just not giving up, right? The, the supports are there, but it, and it's not easy to reach out and, and do what you did, Steve, especially when you're feeling that way. But I think as we know and as we talk about, like nobody can beat addiction on their own. Everybody needs some sort of support team, some sort of some sort of medical aspect to it as well, I believe, uh, in my experience anyways. And um, I just commend you for, for still putting that effort in and reaching out. Could you talk a little bit about the Suboxone, your experience with it, and like what it is and how you use it? And It's, it's more and more available now, right? It's a, it is a good option. I, I really like the Suboxone. It, it helped. I couldn't believe how much better I felt. I know it is still an opioid but it, I've had several arguments about this. I knew someone that was struggling with addiction and they mentioned Suboxone and somebody in their circle, I won't say who, told them, well, then it's just another drug replacing a drug. But it's not. It, it puts you on a path of normal life, right? And Exactly. Yeah, I found the, the dose I needed. I, I stuck with it. And I'm, st I'm still on it. At times, I went down. But I had some other issues with my wife's health, and I went back up. But now I'm, I'm coming down again. I'm at 10 milligrams, I think, right now. So Nice. Yeah. For you. And, yeah, like, again, back to my experience, too, just because I can relate so much to you, Steve, is I was on methadone for a number of years uh, during my recovery. Um, the best way I would explain it to anybody who is kind of not familiar with the terms or this field of work, um, when you use an opioid... You fill these pockets in your brain, these receptors, and let's say when you use an opiate, they fill for six hours. The methadone and suboxone, when you use uh, when you use those, they might fill the receptors for 24 to 30 hours, right? So in my experience with it, it was like, okay, it gave me a chance to live a normal life, to get up and go to work and not feel crappy. I'm not to to be able to give me give myself a chance to separate from all those friends I had that were involved with the drugs and to reprogram my brain. Like when you're involved with drug use, you're just constantly thinking about it. When can I next get my next dose? Uh, does my dealer have any left? Um, how much longer until I should take this next pill? Um, and on, so on and so on, right? So it gives you, you, you yourself a chance to reprogram your thoughts, get out of that addictive thinking, and kind of live a normal life for a little bit while you work on your recovery. Um, it's a great way to, to get into recovery without putting your life on a complete hold. Yeah, that's, that's so very true. Because like for me, Suboxone, like it's, it's a uh, twice a month thing now I go give my sample and my urine sample and I'm, I'm good it's not I take the medications in the morning and then at times I've even forgotten to take the medication because it's it's just getting it's a normal life and it's I don't know anybody that's struggling I think they need to try something you know 
anything. And it's it's the support of like guys like Ryan. I've met now in the men's group. We do it's about almost three years or two two and a half. It's at been least. almost three years now. Yeah. yeah, we had to go online because of COVID, right? right? And uh, met some great guys. You know, it's been it's been incredible. I want to mention. I want to go back real quick, Steve, and talk to you about something you mentioned earlier about the vasectomy and, and getting prescribed opioids and that's kind of being the start of your addiction. I'm curious, did the doctor cut you off at some point during that process or did it just get to a point where like did you built up a tolerance that it wasn't doing enough for you? Um, what was that story like? Yeah, that's a great question because I did, I started off on uh, oxycodone, five milligram, and was prescribed them, I think so much uh, every two weeks. And it would had gone on for a couple of years like that. And the doctor I had retired. So that kind of got me into a little bit of a funk there for a little while. So the doctor that took over was a new, newer gentleman and newer doctor. And he was, he kind of, you know, he questioned it at first, but he kind of just put me on the same kind of medications as things went along. But it did bother him a lot that I was prescribed this type of medication and so much. And he had tried to get me on hydromorphine. So I ended up going down that path and then back on to Oxycontin and Oxyneo, which is the newer, you know. And, but the dosage, yeah, it was gone from five milligram. By the time I was finished, I was taking uh, 40s, you know prescribed 40 milligram oxycodones and the reason it's increasing is because it's not sufficient to handle your pain oh yeah that's right i, I would find like a, a two-week uh script would last me sometimes four maybe five days if i was lucky then you think about that that's crazy right so uh, then i was i tried to find out people i knew that had the stuff or similar and i would i would find the monies and i would buy it I was taking money out of my RSPs and buying my wife's back. And that's how I was supporting the habit. But it's, it's, it's crazy. Like, think of the money that I spent on that. I could have bought uh, a nice sports car or a boat. Right. <laughs> you know? It's terrible. But, hey, that's addiction. And when you're in it, that's all you want. You want to, you want to feel better. You want, to get, you want to get past it. And I think... We need to educate people a hell of a lot more about about what's happening with the world right now with addiction because it's not getting any better. It's getting worse. So just to clarify on that, it would be like if you were prescribed, I don't know, two, they're giving you two or three a day is sort of the idea. Yeah. But, it, but what you require is more than that. That's right. Yeah, it was, okay. I was not following the instructions on the bottle, that's for sure. Now, if they gave you, say, 50 a day, would you take 50 a day or would you have taken however many? Of I would have taken whatever made I would have needed to feel better. Okay. Mm -hmm. At, at times, you know, I thought I, I almost overdosed just on my own, like taking the medications because I, I, would, I would fall asleep. My, I remember at times my wife was freaking out at me and at night she swore I'd, I'd stop breathing. So she'd shake me and it was... It was scary. That that was the last few months of the of the addiction, though, right? So when you're not taking them as prescribed, <laughs> that's right. What were you doing when you ran out? I would I would try and find them. I would buy them. It's the only it's, option, right? Yeah, it's the only option. I had 
I met a couple people that I knew had them and didn't want them, and I was buying them. And then at times I'd run out of that, and I'd be dose, dope sick, waiting for my chance to get my refill. And then I, w I would go to the pharmacy that was open the longest or the earliest, right? And that's what I hated, calling there and sitting down in the chair and waiting. And you'd swear they're looking at you. They know that, you know, you're sick and... But what do you do? Yeah. And going back to uh, going back to spreading awareness and educating people, like you said, Steve. Like, it's been seven years now since the opioid epidemic has been declared a public health emergency. And over that seven-year time span, I don't think anything's gotten worse. Or anything's gotten better. It's only gotten worse. Um, people are dying at absolutely alarming rates. Like Devin said last podcast, people's lives are being stolen from them. And... Um, What's a, what's a message that you would want to tell the public, tell society um, to try to get some of that stigma, stigma crushed or to these messages that you want to get out, being somebody that's been in it? For me, like that's the thing, the understanding of it. Unless you've been an addict or addicted to opioids, I don't care who you are, you don't have a say in making major decisions. You need to have been down that, that road because... Those people that are on the street, there's somebody's brother, there's somebody's father, there's somebody's sister, there's somebody's mother, and there are people that love them, and they are dying at alarming rates. They're being poisoned. So things need to be changed on the stigma of the way, the way people think about addiction. It's not always these people on street corners, right? And it's, it's somebody that somebody loves, and they're dying, and the ignorance that we put towards these people. Oh, they're just junkies. That has to change. They're not junkies, right? They're people. So we need to change the way we think about addictions. Yeah, so just sort of um, re revisiting the, the process of how that happens. The reason that these people, these junkies, are on the street is because many of them traveled the same path you did which is they were prescribed something for a legitimate purpose. They, what they were prescribed was maybe not sufficient for what they were using. They get hooked on them. It becomes too expensive to sustain, and you don't have any other options. You have to go to cheaper substances, crappier substances that you can find off of people that are providing them. More dangerous. Yeah. Much more dangerous. That's, and that's, that's what leads to the, that high number of deaths is like how rampant these addictions have become. Yeah, that's, and that's so true because it's, it's, it are, it's people that were prescribed from a doctor and they think because it's coming from a doctor, oh, it, it must be good for me, right? And that was the thing that, you know, in their late 90s, early aughts that people, oh, it's doctor prescribed it to me, so it must be okay. And then, then it just like, boom, exploded. People are hooked on this shit and can't get off of it and they will seek and do whatever they need to fill that void, whether they, they steal, rob, it's gonna, they're going to do it. it. It is a power that is unbelievable, that addiction. I like to call it a disease, actually. It's a it, disease. It is. It's a very terrible disease. But this is what we talked about with my wife. With cancer and, like, oh boy, or addiction. Cancer, you know, people get around, they bring you gifts and bake cookies and whatever support you with addiction 
they close the door and they're quiet, mm. right? Your neighbors don't gather blankets together for you and make you feel better. They just, oh my God, that person's an addict. What a loser, you know? Yeah. It's that label that's so harmful. Exactly. Yeah. And it's, that's the label that has to change. Not so much hidden behind doors. It's got to be treated the same letter or letter of any other disease, right? Like cancer, or whatever, what other disease you want to pick on. But addiction is a disease and it needs to be treated and respected as that, right? I believe that that is changing slowly, maybe too slowly, but uh, I do see positive signs all the time that people are starting to understand addiction, mental health. These things are becoming much more uh, coming to the forefront of uh, the medical field. A lot more awareness, a lot more money is being kind of put towards some of these things that were previously completely overlooked. Things are taking way too long, though. Like the amount of pain and um, progression in a negative way that this epidemic has gone for things like safe consumption sites, safe supply. Like this is these are conversations that have been talked about since the beginning of this epidemic seven years ago, and I know that it's happening in some cities, some some places, but in my community, like the safe the safe consumption site was uh, approved for a location. I think like three years ago now, mm. almost. And it's like what is taking so long to get this opened up? People are dying every single day, and they, it's, they, those are the kind of things that can really save lives. And uh, I, I don't know off the top of my head, it might be. Vancouver or British Columbia, but they have just changed the laws down there. Maybe one of you guys know that they decriminalized um, drugs in some degree. Like you can carry up to three grams on you, I believe. Um, and right. I think that's a great step in the right direction. But even more so is like the safe supply route. It's like if people are going to use these substances, they're going to use them. Okay. So let's provide a safe supply for people. Let's regulate it let's make sure that people are being getting tainted drugs and and like Devin said having their lives stolen from them um so yeah. is suboxone slash methadone the solution there is that I, I i think it's a solution for i think it is a it's an option i think it is a solution but it's not a solution for everybody and i know i have friends that have been on methadone for 15 plus years some people are going to be on it for the rest of their life. They, they, they aren't able to come down off the dose, and that could be because not only their addiction, but they're in so much pain that, they, that the methadone or suboxone helps their pain management. Um, so, so, so that's huge. If you can take care of the pain management side of things, yes. like that's a big problem solved, yes. right? Or taken care of. But what are the downsides to the suboxone and methadone use? So it's... Steve, you can yeah. speak a bit to it. So for me, like Suboxone, I'm in a lot of pain. I have a lot of groin pain, which I previously talked about. And I have uh, lots of problems with my lower back. So without the Suboxone, I'm in quite a bit of pain. I do have to take a little bit of a low dose. And I think re realistically, I could be on it for a very long time. I've tried to come down a few times and I've been successful now but the first time i went down uh my wife found out she had cancer so it kind of it almost pushed me right back i i was feeling weird like tope sick almost and sometimes when i have talked to ryan about this i'll get a cold or something and you almost get those same kind of feelings they're not as heavy or strong 
but they're there you know it's it's bizarre it's the, like it's it the brings trigger. it back it's, it's the, the trigger. trigger of it because it's so easy to relate back to those feelings because those feelings were just basically hell is what, what i would say and when you feel those hot and cold sweats when you're <laughs> sick it's like oh like it brings you those thoughts of withdrawal again and it just right away that's the first thing you're going to think about and i think just like you're talking to their talking to steve there too is your wife getting cancer a lot of times those are the things in our life that cause us to make bad decisions and act off emotions and to cope with the stress that comes with these major life events that we're all going to go through in our life death loss um getting fired from our job anything like that and um as an addict that's where we need to come up with these coping strategies and these tools to make sure that when these hard life events happen, that we don't go back to our old coping strategies of using drugs and and stuff like that to cope. Yeah, we, I always did that. You always, you always took more drugs or filled that hole when it was a celebration sometimes or shitty things happen in your life, right? You always hear, oh, that was my birthday when I almost overdosed. You always hear, you know... Or it was around Christmas, or there's always that opportunity, right? right? Being being dope sick is is unbelievable, though, and people will seek whatever they need to fill that hole, right? And that's that's where people need to understand that, yeah, okay, they're a druggie, but they need they're a person, and they're gonna do it. They're gonna take this medication. They're gonna find it, and you know. It's, it's it's compassion you're speaking about. Exactly. Right? It's, it's like compassion. really understanding that that person is trying to live their life and the, trying to live a comfortable, you know, life where they can get up every day and you know, it's very difficult to do that when you're suffering and you're mm-hmm. stuck in that when level I, of suffering. When I was in the throes of it, in the middle of it, that like I said to Ryan, I probably could have built a rocket and gone to Mars by now. But the energy I I wasted and time, you know, finding the medication do i have enough mm-hmm. you know just the work that went involved and the and the lying behind people's backs why you need to do this why you relate for that you know it's just it's unbelievable the bullshit stories that you came up with mm-hmm. you know for me anyway can you talk maybe a little bit about um some of the people that were in your life that you've connected with and maybe supported you in getting out of that yeah when I first got started in, in this addiction, I met up from someone with, uh, I won't name the organization, but uh, it was Julia. And uh, she was an opioid counselor. And I was meeting with her. It was during COVID, so it was always on the phone. Uh, for the first little while, every few days while I was seeking treatment. And then it became weekly. And then she mentioned to me about Ryan about, uh, oh, you should join this men's group and it'd be great for you. And I'm thinking, there's only maybe 30, 40 days into my my addiction. And I went on and it, it was amazing. Like the guys really, really helped me out. It was, I was still, I was doing okay, but just hearing the familiarity and the, the relations of other people that have experienced the same crap as I did, you know. And then you're thinking your story, well, at the end of it, yeah, it was bad, but it, this guy's worse. Or, you know, there was people we connected with that were right in the throes of addiction. They had just started their treatment, and we talked about Suboxone and Methadone. The one, the one guy we talked to, I won't say his name, but he'd 
just struggled with the addiction and he just quit. And I, he'd never heard of Suboxone. He'd tried methadone and didn't like it. He went and ended up going on Suboxone and he's still free and clear of it. And that was like almost three years ago now. So it's, it's amazing. Like I look forward to it every, every Wednesday, you know, now we have a group that we meet in person on Tuesdays. It's great. Like, uh, it's part of my life now, you know? And, and Steve, you need to, I just want you to know too, like we still see these guys coming in at the, that same stage that you came in very early recovery. And I just want you to know, like over these two years of you coming to the group, like you're helping a lot of people out from your experiences now too. Like you said, speaking about your experience with Suboxone, your experience with reaching out for support, and how you were successfully able to get off of the opioids and, and get back to living a happy and successful life. Um, you, you made a big impact on people as well being there. Yeah, I just wanted to touch on that, uh, that you reached out first. You recognized you needed support. Mm-hmm. You reached out to an organization that got you connected to a counselor. Mm-hmm. That counselor connected you to another counselor mm-hmm. who then was running this group, mm-hmm. which got you connected to a bunch of peers. That's right. So yeah. all of that, I mean, part of that is you helping yourself to start, right? That's right. Then help from professionals and then another level of support in the, in the peers, um, which is really what we're focusing on here, right? We're trying to get into that peer support piece. Um, so yeah, I'll reiterate what Ryan was saying about, you know, you're receiving something from showing up to those groups, but you're also giving a lot, uh, mm-hmm. right? Just by participating. And uh, it's just a really cool thing to be a part of. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, just for for sake of time, Steve, I wanted to get into one discussion that's really important, I think. And you mentioned that you worked in a factory. Mm-hmm. How many years were you working in the factory? So I worked there uh, 31 years. 31 years. 31 years, yeah. I was there. My father worked there. He was there for 42. Wow. And I worked there for 31 years. And... Um, I worked from the floor all the way up to a supervisor's position. And um, back in 2020 of June, I was let go due to COVID-19. Hmm. It was a restructuring of the company. They let uh, 10 people locally go and 100 people worldwide. But shortly after that, I was let go. Uh, about a week later, I was in a major car accident. car pulled out in front of me and... I hit them and, you know, it, I was still in the throes of the, my addiction and that kind of escalated it big time again and brought it to the forefront and I started using more again up until August of that same year, right? A few months later, so. Yeah. And I also worked in factory for a few years and that's why I wanted to have this discussion is that that work culture in factories surrounding substance use can you speak a bit about that with after 31 years being in, in that factory kind of culture? It's huge because a lot of the people that are there are on opioids. They're, they have it. They're addicted to it, and they're hiding it um, because that's where I bought some of the medications, believe it or not. It, working as a laborer, you know, 25, 30 years, it wears you out. You get sore. You get hurt. Yes. And that's what they're prescribed, right? So... It yeah. is a culture, and it's there, and it's hard, and it's it's tough. The factory I worked at, you would hear people call it um, the pharmacy. Yeah, Because exactly. you could get anything you wanted there, and um, 
basically, like you said, these guys that have been working in those roles on the line work for 20 plus years, they all have injuries from that repetitive use and just from the work. And um, a lot of people that they see around them, this is what they're using to help cope with the pain. So it just, it's kind of like a ripple effect in those, in those environments there. And yeah. And it's not like you're sharing these things with the intention to get anybody hooked on them. Like you're, no. you're trying to help each other out and support each other with yes. serious issues. Yeah. Um, very true. Very, that is very yeah. true. Yeah. When you're, you know, when, when you're in it, you're, you're trying to help another person out with something and then you end up buying it. it it's a vicious circle to be honest with you. What's your advice to somebody that is going, that is experiencing a lot of pain right now? in a factory and maybe has thought about trying opioids. I don't, I would never, if I could, I've always said this, if I could, if I had a time machine, the first thing I would do is get off that vasectomy where I had my vasectomy table and I wouldn't have gone down the path of opioids. I hope. So my, my message would be, "Uh -uh, don't try it. I mean, for me, I wasn't hooked right away, but it, it took maybe a few months. But once I was, it was it was a path that, like, I'm in my 50s, and I wish I would have figured this out when I was a lot younger because I wasted a lot of time, a lot of energy on on this. You know, I could have done something better with my life, really. You know. <laughs> so what's the alternate route then, if it's if it's not opioids? What do that's, you do? That's a tough question. I mean, I've heard several doctors saying like opioids are one of the best pain relievers. They they use it throughout hospitals to this day, right? And they always will. And I don't know. Like it's tough. It's a tough call. So in some cases, at times, it's the right medication, but it's incredibly easy to get hooked onto them. You know. So maybe trying to use them as prescribed, trying to stick to that as closely as possible. Maybe I'm wrong. Still and using, still using them as prescribed. You're still going to have the dependency to yeah. them. Doesn't like, that's why it, like the opiates, you're still going to be dependent on them. So trying to day. use them for as short a time as possible. That's not, that's not an option either because maybe, maybe yeah, if you use them once or twice, but as we know, yeah, I don't think that very rarely will ever happen. First of all, because you take it that one, two, three days, then you're waking up without it. You feel even worse than you did. Right. So then it's like, okay, what's the only thing that's going to make this better is taking it again. I think the solution, and this is not, I don't know if it's right or wrong, but I get that when you're working in a factory that long, you got a family, you got a house, you got bills, you got stuff that you are responsible to pay for. But at the end of the day, if you need to change your work or change what you're doing, then in order to not get hooked on opioids, I think that that's worth it. And I don't know how you do that with, with all those responsibilities, but if you need to change what you're doing, you're working, if you're working in a factory every day, you're depressed, you're sore every day, and the only way that you can cope with it is opioids, then you gotta change something up. That's the only way, I think. So hearing that, it sounds like quit your job, which is, a, right. which is another really tough choice. Exactly. But yeah. a, another way to say that might be develop your hobbies, like find the things that you really love to do outside of work and try and make a source of income out of those things. Because not only will that enrich your life, which will decrease your pain and make your life easier, but maybe you can shift away from some of that work that's causing a lot of the damage in your, 
and on your body and it's it's a tough call like i mean you still got to put food on the table and like for me it was i didn't get hooked right away it took a while but once i was hooked i couldn't get off of them it was terrible like 15 years right i mean and it it got worse and worse and worse and you know my wife knew it was a major problem and other people around me didn't that's how well it people can hide it but where i'm sitting now i was i was telling ryan the other day i can i can see people around i can tell they're struggling you just it's it's like you're a, a pi a, you know private investigator an opioid specialties you know you can just tell you know that that this person is dealing with this shit right now you know just their look on their face the way they're acting you know and i think it was easy it was, it was easy to hide for a long time especially when you're using oxycontin like you said but nowadays steve like i'm i'm walking downtown in my city and people are zombies everywhere this is not the same as when i was in it almost six years ago like people, this this fentanyl and this these these street drugs that are out there are not the same as the drugs that I was taking six seven years ago. People are zombies. They they are sleeping, standing up all over the city, and it's it, they, it's not real. Like no, it's not, the drugs are not safe. Right, and they're not being used for the purposes they're designed for. That's right. Um, but yeah, that's what I would say is. Things are changing, but they're also also speaking to the changes. When I was in it six six ish years ago, there was no naloxone kits available. I never saw those anywhere. I never, and all of my friends in my life were either doing drugs or selling drugs, and there was no naloxone kits around anywhere. Fast forwarding six years now, they're everywhere. As you can get them at any pharmacy uh, for the audience members. If you guys are interested in in getting a naloxone kit or even naloxone training, you guys can reach out to us at Peer Connects. Um, at gmail.com or uh, just go to any of your local pharmacies and they give you a quick training and give you the kit. Um, even if you're not someone who uses the opioids, definitely worth having on your person because you could save a life. Um, and I can honestly say I've, I've saved a few lives just driving by at the right time in the right place. Um, so please get your naloxone kits, have them on hand. Uh, it's really important. Just one of the things you were touching on there is like, yes, it, it seems to be getting so much worse. And it's like kind of this concept of like things have to get worse before they get better. Mm. Like because they've gotten so bad, it's awareness has increased dramatically. Yes. People are seeing it all over the place and seeing the kids and asking the questions and seeing the people and asking questions. So, you know, it looks sword. really bad right now and we are in a dangerous place, but the hope there is things are going to reverse and we're going to go in the opposite direction soon, right? It's already starting to happen and we just got to build that momentum. Yes. It's what, a good way to look uh, at it. I think what the public doesn't understand, what, like you were saying about the zombies and the people, yeah, the drugs have gotten a hell of a lot more potent and they're, they're poisonous at times, right, with fentanyl. And it's, people don't realize that they're not getting the stuff from a pharmacy, but it looks like stuff from a pharmacy. Mm. It's fake. It's been made with the same drill press or a, a pill press as the pill manufacturer. There was a demonstration in Southern Ontario a couple of weeks ago, and they had several pharmacies there, police, and they had all these drugs on the, on the table, and no one could tell the fake from the real. They're, they're that good, but the fake ones kill you, and the real ones 
which are almost next to nil now on the street, are they looked identical, mirror to mirror. They could not tell them apart. Like 30 people couldn't tell which medication was fake and which medication was real. So it's like Russian roulette right now on the streets. Well, Steve, I just want to thank you from, uh, on behalf of our team and behalf of everybody in the Peer Connects community listening. Um, it's not easy to come on and have these discussions and be vulnerable and, and be open about your story, especially when it's one of challenges. So I commend you, and I just want to thank you for being willing to come on here today. Um, yeah, really valuable uh, conversation, I think, and it'd be great to have you back on maybe yeah. in the yeah. future. No, it's good. I like talking about it because people need to be educated and Education will change the way people have a feeling about addiction and, and the struggles of, uh, of opioids and, and beyond that, right? It's, it's, it's like a tidal wave, and we're only at the very tip of it. It's, it's scary. It really needs to be an open discussion. And Oh, I have six Meloxone kits at home. I just That's gave two to somebody the other awesome, day. That's awesome, Steve, yes. And I said, well, you never know, man. Like, so it's about. I know, so... Yeah, they were kind of wondering why I had them, but oh well. I just told them, you know, they're for you. Here yeah. you go. Yeah. <laughs> I've been handing them out. So yeah, and just going back to speaking about those groups, guys, that uh, Steve was speaking to. If you guys are interested in learning more about these groups that we offer here at Peer Connects, these men groups specifically, uh, that you can check out check out our website www.peerconnects.com. And you can also just send us an email, uh, peerconnects at gmail.com, and uh, we'd love to hear from you and give you give you any info that you're looking for. And again, let's just get connected. Love is free and connection is the key. Right on. Thanks for listening, guys. Thanks, Steve. Yeah, thanks for having me on, boys. Thanks. <laughs> the Peer Connects podcast is brought to you by Fly Productions, produced and edited by Mark. To support the podcast, please like and subscribe.